Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Please join me in prayer uh, once more. Heavenly Father, God, um, please be near to us in this time. Father, we fall so short of seeing you as you are. God, our words fall so short of praising you as we ought. Oh God, please use this time in your word and through your spirit produce worship in our hearts and holiness in our lives. Lead us into deeper fellowship with you, Lord all to the praise and glory of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever wondered if you're really saved? Sometimes our experience in the Christian life doesn't quite match up with what we think the Christian life should look like. There have been times in my life where I've wondered if I'm saved. I've asked questions like, if I'm really a Christian, then how come I don't know when I got saved? Or, If I'm a Christian, then how come I don't have some special feeling or awareness that the Holy Spirit is inside of me? Or how come I don't seem to have the same excitement or emotion that other believers do when they pray or when they sing and worship? Or maybe you've had friends in the church who seem to follow Christ, and maybe your faith even grew as a result of them, and yet they eventually walked away. We worshiped with them. We prayed with them. What happened? Well, in 1 John, John is writing to a church that is asking similar questions. False teachers had started to deceive people. And so people started believing these teachers. They were claiming to have fellowship with God while living like the world and denying doctrines of Jesus. So some people left the church, and those who were remaining in the church were left wondering if they were a part of the true fellowship, if they were believing in the true Jesus. How do I know that I have the truth, that I have eternal life? Who is truly converted? And so what I want to talk to you about today is assurance, how you can have assurance that you are truly converted, that you can know that you are saved. And what we'll see is that assurance is found in believing in the person of Christ and in living out your union with him. Trusting in the person of Christ and living out your union with him is how you can know that you are saved. And John doesn't leave any gray area in 1 John. As you'll see, you're either in darkness or light, denial or confession, lawlessness or righteousness, hate or love, death or life. John wants to encourage you with the sure hope and relief that is found in Christ. And yet the way he goes about it is actually to invite you to examine yourself and the evidence that's seen in your life. See, whether assurance is something that you worry about or not, what you and I both need is to examine ourselves according to Scripture so that we have assurance from Christ instead of being anxious or mistaken. And ultimately, seeking assurance leads to greater fellowship with God. It's not just clarity, but joy that John is after. 
And so we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 1 today, and in this chapter, John is going to teach us about assurance. And we're going to look at this in three points, why we want assurance, why we need assurance, and how we know we have assurance. Why we want it, why we need it, and how we know we have it. So let's take a look at our first point, why we want assurance. We'll start in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John's language sounds kind of mystical. He's giving us glimpses into divine mysteries, and yet his purpose is really practical. He wants us to know our personal relational God. You see, John wants to give you assurance that you're a Christian, but you have to ask yourself, why do I even want to be a Christian? Do you desire the God of the Bible? When you think of the one thing you'd be most afraid to lose, the one thing that you can't live without, is it God? John wants you to know who your salvation is all about. The psalmist says, I have no good apart from you. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Is that true for you? And so the focus of these verses is the word of life, but what is the word? Well, as we'll see, the word is Jesus. You see how he starts verse one, that which was from the beginning. And this is reminiscent of how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is eternal, which is to say that the word is God, and yet he's with the Father. So he's a distinct person from the Father. And this is part of where we get the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I remember over a decade ago, uh, there was a book group at the church, and we read through this big, ugly, purple book called Heresies. And in that book, we discovered that every sermon illustration that we'd ever heard to describe the Trinity actually described a heresy from hundreds of years ago. But far from giving us just a memorable metaphor, John is wanting to draw us into this mystery. And so he says that this divine person, the Son, was made manifest. He had always existed, but then at a moment in history, he became the man, Jesus Christ. And this is where we get the phrase fully God and fully man. The divinity and humanity of Jesus seem to contradict each other, but somehow they're both true at the same time. The 100% divine Son of God took on 100% flesh in the person of Jesus. And at this point, I know some of you are probably thinking, all this talk about the Trinity and Christology just seems really academic and impractical. But for the people that John is writing to, these events had only happened about 50 years ago. The life made manifest was a fairly recent event. Some of these believers, like John, had been around when Jesus was alive and walked the earth. And John hadn't just been around, he himself was an eyewitness. Did you notice the repeated words, heard, seen, looked upon, touched? He's emphasizing that he personally witnessed the life made manifest in the historical person of Jesus Christ. Do you ever forget 
that Jesus is a person. How does Jesus being a person affect your life? What's different about it? If you had all of the same moral principles and values of love and purpose and hope, but you didn't have the person of Jesus, what would be different? What would be missing? John is showing us that the life made manifest is the revealing of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is important because as we'll see, this word, this person of Jesus, is actually eternal life. To miss out on the person of Jesus is to miss out on eternal life. And that's the very thing that we want assurance that we have. Let's read verses one to two again and continue into verse three. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John proclaims eternal life, and that life is Jesus. Jesus is not only the source of John's message, but is the message itself. But in what way is Jesus eternal life? Does it refer to how the Son of God had always existed? Or to how he's the only way for us to live forever? Well, while both of these are true, John is helping us see so much more. Let's read verse 3 again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is proclaiming the person of Jesus so that we might share in the fellowship of God. The word fellowship refers to a participation, a communion, or a closeness. And this fellowship is with the very eternal Father and his Son. Do you know what the oldest thing is that we know? If we look as far back into eternity past as the Bible lets us go, what would we find? Let's read from Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before the world existed, before one thing was ever created, there was a father loving his son. Fathers know that moment in the delivery room where they hold their child for the first time. I remember when my oldest Nehemiah was born. Um, it was almost a, a spiritual experience. Holding him for the first time, I felt all of this love for my son that I'd never known before, and yet it was a mere reflection of the love that the father has always had for his son. The father, son, and spirit had fellowship with one another from eternity past. He is one God, and yet he's not a lonely or a selfish God. There's always been a community, loving community inside of God himself. And true life, the life that has always existed, the life that's extended to us in the gospel, is the very life of fellowship shared by the Father and his Son. And so, the true life overflowed 
in the plan to create and redeem a people that could be welcomed into their fellowship forever. And so the only reason that love exists is because God exists. And now he invites us into his love. Jesus is the only way, not only because of how we get eternal life, but what we get in eternal life. As John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you see how personal a relationship with Jesus is? He is God with us, sent to us to extend the love of the Father to us and wrap us into their divine fellowship for all eternity. To miss the person of Jesus is to miss absolutely everything. You can't have eternal life apart from him because he is eternal life. To ask if you have eternal life is to ask, do you know him? And though this is incredibly personal, remember that it's not just limited to you and God. Look at what John says in verses three to four. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. John's own joy and ours is made complete as we join in the fellowship of God. You can sense the affection and love that John has for these believers. Over and over again, he'll call them my little children and beloved. He cherishes the brothers and sisters there. And his love motivated him to write so that others would know God. And this should be our motivation in our interactions with unbelievers. Do you realize that when you invite someone to church or to community group or to read the Bible together, you're not just inviting them into your church family. You're inviting them into the very family of God. This is why we evangelize. When we invite someone over for dinner, it's because we want to invite them into the family of God. It's because we want them to be a brother, a sister, participating in the fellowship of our Father. And so in our passage, John has shared the majesty of eternal life coming for us. This is why we want assurance, because we want him to know him and his fellowship. Don't you want assurance that this is for you? That this fellowship is yours? But this also introduces a problem, which brings us to our next point, why we need assurance. Let's read verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John's message, the message he heard from Jesus is that God is light. Now everyone knows the famous verse, God is love. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where they say, well, I believe in a God of love? Well, it's true, God is love. In fact, that exact verse is just a few chapters later in the book of 1 John. But that's not the only statement in the Bible of who God is. Look at some of the other statements about who God is. God is faithful. God is gracious and merciful. God is holy. God is a righteous judge. God is a consuming fire. You see, all these statements together start to give us a sense of God's holiness. And this is what it means that God is light. All that he is is pure and radiant. The harmony and totality of all his attributes are endless, and there's no darkness in him. And so his light is divine, but it's also deadly. 
when the Bible describes someone seeing a vision of God, two things usually happen. First, they see something bright and glorious, so much so that they grasp for words to try to describe what they're seeing. But secondly, they fall down on their face like Ezekiel, or fall down as though dead like John, or cry out, woe is me, like Ezekiel. Why does the clearest picture of God in all his radiance leave people so undone? You see, God's light is glorious, but also it exposes everything it shines on. It exposes us for who we really are. Have you ever been surprised by what you've seen in the mirror when you've turned on the bathroom light? I once had a reaction to an allergy shot, which unbeknownst to me had caused swelling around my eyes. I had no idea until someone said, what's the matter with your face? A lot of things run through your mind very quickly when someone asks you that question. I went to the mirror, turned on the light, and looked in the mirror, and in an instant, what I expected to see was replaced with reality. Well, God's brilliance not only sets him apart from everything else, but like the light coming on in front of the mirror, he exposes us and our ways. And this is the problem that John is going to address. If we want assurance that we have eternal life, if we want assurance that we have fellowship with the God of light, then we cannot walk in darkness. Let's read verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So what is this darkness? Well, John makes it clear that it's completely opposed to God and to the truth. It's a practice of falsehood, doing what's wrong while maintaining that it's actually okay. Walking in darkness is walking in sin. And why do we do this? Because we love sin. Look with me at John 3, 19 to 20, starting in the middle of um, verse 19. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does not come to the light, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We love darkness because it doesn't expose our evil deeds and wicked things. Imagine turning on the light in front of the mirror again, only this time you notice that all that pie and cake lately is starting to have an effect. You have a choice to make. Well, if you love pie and cake, you only have one option. You turn off the light. You know the saying, ignorance is bliss. Well, what John's describing is willful ignorance. It's self-deception. It's saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. It's saying, I have fellowship with God, where there is no fellowship with God. If we claim to follow Jesus but are walking in sin, then whatever we're claiming to have fellowship with, it's not the God of light. Otherwise, we would hate what God hates and love what he loves. So this is the great dilemma. How can I share in the fellowship of this holy God? Assurance isn't just something that we want. It's something that we need. And now we're all experts at justifying ourselves. I can think of several conversations that I've had with people where I've tried to share the gospel, and at some point, almost everyone will say, I'm a per good person, or I'm not a bad person. There always seems to be plenty of other people worse than us to compare ourselves with. 
But the standard here is not that you walk in less darkness than someone else. The comparison is with God in whom there is no darkness at all. I remember one Sunday morning I met a man on the sidewalk out front of the church and we struck up a conversation and I got to know a little bit about him and I got a chance to share the gospel with him. And he said that he was a pretty good person and he felt like he had a relationship with God. But through the course of our conversation, as he asked questions, you could see the concern grow on his face as he started to understand the problem of sin and our inability to make ourselves right with God. By the end of the conversation, he admitted that he wasn't a good person, that he'd been telling himself how religious he was, but it was all a sham. So if you are able to hear of the holiness of God and not be unsettled, that's wonderful. John wants you to have that assurance that allows you to boldly approach your Lord. But what John wants for you even more is to have assurance that's based in truth. Which brings us to our third point, how we know we have assurance. How we know we have assurance. He doesn't want you to fall prey to self-deception. And so in order to do that, he provides two tests. Are you walking in the light? And secondly, are you turning into the light? So let's take a look at our first test. Are you walking in the light? Let's read verse seven, which says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we just saw that God is immeasurably holy. In 1 Timothy, it says that he dwells in unapproachable light. How can you walk in something that you can't even be in. See, we have to understand being in the light before we can understand walking in the light. Remember how John said that the message he heard from Jesus is that God is light. Well, what is he referring to? Well, Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, Jesus does not just bring us a message. He is the message. All that God is is revealed to us most clearly in the person of Christ. Jesus is God with us, the very presence of God entering humanity. He is eternal life coming for us. He is the true light coming for us. And in the same passage in John 8, he says, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. To know Jesus is to know the Father and their fellowship. But that still doesn't answer the question of how Jesus makes this fellowship possible. Well, remember what it said in the last part of verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's through the cross that Jesus unites us to himself, cleansing us from all sin. Remember, the God of light cannot have fellowship with sinners. Evil cannot dwell with him. And yet the story of the Bible is the unfolding plan of God to dwell with sinners without compromising who he is, without sacrificing his perfection and holiness. God's beloved son, his own son, willfully suffers and dies in our place so that God's justice is vindicated even as he wraps sinners like us into his fellowship. And all this not in cooperation with you, but in spite of you. We cannot muster up one good deed to contribute to our salvation. The only good deeds God will accept are the ones that Jesus performed on your behalf. And the only payment that he will accept for our sins is Christ crucified in our place. 
Who is this God? The God of light and love is most clearly seen at the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, listen closely. If you have cast yourself on the mercies of Jesus, then you are united with Jesus. You are in the light because you are united with the light of the world, Christ himself. And so to walk in the light is to live out your union with him. Walking in the light is facing every moment of every day with Christ. You trust what he said about who he is, what he's done, who you are in light of him, all of his promises of being with you and supplying all that you need so that you can trust his way for your life. You have received this fellowship by grace. You are in Christ. You are made new. And if all of this is true, then your life will increasingly be characterized by walking in God's light. Now notice I said increasingly, not perfectly. It's not perfection, but a pursuit. And we see this in verse 7. Let's reread it again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And the cleansing that John has in mind here isn't past tense, referring to conversion. It's actually present tense. It's ongoing cleansing in the life of the believer. You see, walking in darkness is not the same as stumbling in the light. James says we all stumble in many ways. And in fact, the more you grow in holiness, the more you realize how far the gap is between you and his perfections. Paul laments this in his own life in Romans 7, where he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we walk in the light, yes, stumbling, and yes, realizing more and more our own sinfulness, it's the blood of God's own son that cleanses us and we keep walking. We obey not for a relationship with God, but from our relationship with God. Discipleship flows out of relationship. We don't earn it, but oh, brothers and sisters, as we walk with him, our fellowship does become sweeter. And not only are we given fellowship with God, but again, John says that we have fellowship with one another. Now, what is it about the fellowship of believers that makes it unique to those who walk in the light? Well, when you come to church, what do you think the basis of your fellowship will be? It's possible to confuse biblical community with camaraderie over shared interests or being in the same stage of life. You can form a community around sports, recreation, or music, but all of this is focused on what man does. Here is true fellowship, and it's based in who God is. Our fellowship with each other is a sharing in him. Have you ever met a believer for the first time and instantly they were like family to you? Patty and I had the opportunity to host an international student for a weekend. And she was a music teacher from Panama. Her name was N.A. And she was a believer. And meeting her was like meeting an old friend. We instantly had love for this sister. In those short couple days that we had with her, she played with our kids and we just kind of welcomed her into our life. We took her all around Missoula, took her to church, we worshiped with her, and we all cried when we said goodbye to her. We'd only met her a couple days ago. We had almost nothing else in common, but what was familiar, what we shared together was a sharing in the spirit of God. 
And this isn't just a one-time event. There's been people we've met everywhere from our neighborhood all the way to Kenya where instantly there was fellowship in God. So whether you wrestle to feel included in fellowship or you're equating shared interests to fellowship, you have to ask yourself, is God at the center of what I'm looking for? Is it his fellowship that I'm seeking? If you are converted to Christ, then you will progressively, persistently grow in knowing him and walking like him. And all the things you have in common with other believers will only be enhanced because all of it is also a sharing in Christ. And all this comes to us as we walk in the light. Now, some of you may be thinking, I want to walk in the light, but what does that practically even look like? Well, John helps us again by providing the second test. Are you turning into the light? Let's read verses 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we look at verses 6, 8, and 10, we see three claims of the unconverted. They claim to have fellowship with God, they claim to have no sin, and they claim to have not sinned. We also see three deceptions. They lie and do not practice the truth, they deceive themselves, and they make God a liar. To say we have fellowship with God while walking in darkness is to claim that God approves of the darkness. To deny that my sinful actions are sinful is to accuse God of being a liar. Do you see how personally damaging this is in a relationship? If you've ever had someone misrepresent you or make false accusations against you, you know how grievous that is. Yet this is the God who created us, the God who knows us intimately, and denial of sin is an attack on his holy character. Now, it's not shocking in the church to hear that we are sinners, but it's far easier for us to stomach the concept of my general sinfulness and much harder when it starts to get specific and personal. We'll start to minimize our sin by replacing biblical words with unbiblical ones. Like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. I'm not bitter, I just avoid toxic people. I'm not sexually immoral, I just slip up every now and again. I'm not crude, I'm just quoting a show. If we don't have his word in us, then everyone will do what's right in their own eyes, completely apart from Christ. This is the opposite of living out our union with him. So are your ways of interpreting what's going on in your life absent of him? Are the words you use to give advice to others absent of him? Are the rationalizations you give for your behavior absent of him? Brothers and sisters, to disregard his word in the way you live is to set up your own version of reality in opposition to the truth. To minimize our sin is to minimize our need for Jesus and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. But he who is forgiven much loves much. You must seek him in his word if you are to know him, if you're to be more than one more person claiming to have not sinned while doing what's right in their own eyes. Let's read verse nine again. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of the cleansing blood of Jesus, it is safe to acknowledge our sin. Because of the cleansing blood of Jesus, there is mercy when we acknowledge our sin. In Proverbs it says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. See, in biblical confession, acknowledgement of sin includes a forsaking of our sin. It's not only admitting, but also accepting responsibility and renouncing our ungodliness and worldly passions. So in these two tests, we see walking in the light and confession of sin as we turn back into the light. And this turning in walking is what it looks like to live a life of repentance. And a life of repentance is a life filled with assurance. Now, it's easy to have some wrong ideas about what repentance should look like. On one hand, we sometimes admit sin without being that bothered by it. But the goal isn't simply to be vulnerable. Other times, we can be bothered for the wrong reasons. For instance, there have been times where my grief over sin is really just disappointment over what other people will think of me. In those times, I'm not actually grieving over how I have grieved God by my sin against him. And sometimes my confession has been a trite, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that. But have I cried out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner? And then as I've tried to put off the old and put on the new, how often have I just started practicing my righteousness before others in order to be seen by them? Suddenly, there's a fresh opportunity to get the praise of man. That's not humbly desiring to show love towards others because the love God has shown me. On the other hand, there are times that I've been just in complete despair over my sinfulness. I just could not accept in those moments that God could love me. But in those moments, what had really changed? Was it God's awareness of my sin or was it mine? And so as the Spirit and God's word bring us awareness and conviction of sin, what should repentance practically look like? Well, here are three words that you might find helpful to remember whenever you feel that conviction. Pray, practice, and purge. First, pray. If you wrestle to feel godly grief over your sin, you may find it helpful to pray kneeling down if you physically can. Perhaps kneeling down could help you bring your heart in line with the brokenness that you know you should feel. Second, practice. Don't just settle for not doing some sins, but become the person who's known for doing the opposite of those sins. Like the thief who doesn't just stop stealing, but he works hard so he has something to be generous with, with others. Now most of us would agree that we should pray and practice, but you may not have thought as much about the need to purge. This is where we need to get serious about not walking in darkness. Stop nurturing sinful habits and thoughts and putting yourself in places where you're easily tempted. Jesus says in Matthew 5, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's using extreme language to wake us up. If something is causing you to sin, cut it off. The original Hebrew word for holy actually means to cut or to separate. And when Jesus is saying to cut it off, he's telling us to cut off what is sinful in order to be set apart for God. It's not just for sin to be separated from us, it's for us to be separated to God. Something that helps me evaluate what needs to go in my life is simply to ask, 
does this lead my heart closer to Jesus or does this lead me away from Jesus? Does this increase my devotion for Jesus or does it deaden my heart to Jesus? Does it somehow make Jesus seem less real to me? Some things are permissible that are not helpful. So pray, practice, purge. We start our walk with God with repentance, and from then on, our life is continually characterized by repentance. In Proverbs, it says that the righteous falls seven times and rises again. We need ongoing confession because we need ongoing forgiveness and cleansing in order to be in fellowship with God. This is essential to our assurance that we are in him. So that's what the act of confession and turning into the light looks like. But now we're going to see how God responds to us when we repent. Let's read verse 9 again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does it mean that he is just to forgive? Now, if you have even the slightest awareness of your own sinfulness, then you know that standing before a just judge is not good news for us. But here he is just to forgive the guilty. Now, it's a lot more common for someone to object to how a loving God could judge anyone. But in the Bible, the dilemma is exactly the opposite. How can a just God show mercy to sinners who deserve his wrath? But in the cross, his justice doesn't come at the expense of his mercy or his mercy at the expense of his justice. At the cross, his justice was vindicated. How? The perfect son died and absorbed the wrath reserved for me so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when it comes to those who are converted, not only is God just when he forgives, but he would be unjust not to forgive. The son is with the father, bearing witness that he has already paid for it. God has so bound himself to us in Christ that he would have to be untrue to himself. He would have to stop being God in order for his, his mercy to run out for those who have called on his mercy. So how does a faithful and just God meet you in repentance? Sin displeases God. That is absolutely true. But if you are in Christ, then his love for you doesn't fluctuate throughout the day based on your performance. This would minimize the cross of Christ as if it wasn't enough, as if God might be welcoming or rejecting me at any moment, depending on my performance. But the cross plus anything is an insufficient cross. Imagine the difference between a father who cheers his son on as he's learning to ride his bike and falls off and gets back on again, versus a demanding father who isn't pleased unless perfection is achieved. How do you view your heavenly father? Remember the prodigal son, he hadn't earned anything. He hadn't achieved anything. He had just turned and walked home. But who was more enthusiastic about the son's return? The son walked, but the father ran. This is how God meets us in repentance. If we confess and forsake our sin, our father eagerly embraces us. And so God's grace is meant for the humble, for those who confess their sin. Forgiveness inclines itself to the one who falls down before him and Jesus affectionately stoops down, reaches out his hand and brings up the lowly. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness or as it said back in verse seven, from all sin, all unrighteousness, all sin, Dear brothers and sisters, do you realize God will judge every single sin that has ever been committed? 
There are only two options. Either it was dealt with when his son died on the cross or it's dealt with with the sinner experiencing God's wrath for eternity. How incredible is the worth of Jesus. The value of the blood of God's own son is so unimaginably great that every ugly, hurtful, self-exalting, God-belittling thought that's ever been had by a believer has all been paid for. Jesus hung on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God against millions and millions of sinners and didn't give up his spirit until he had paid for all of it. Now the Father's forgiveness keeps us in his fellowship and his cleansing purifies us for a holy life of walking in that fellowship. Now in closing, it is undeniable in this passage that God cares about our holiness. Our assurance depends on it. And this is something that I've personally wrestled with because you see, if you aren't careful when you read this passage, it seems that there's a contradiction between being saved by grace alone and the requirement to live a holy life. Now I've tried to show the emphasis in these verses so that you grasp the goodness of God in his fellowship, his holiness, his costly grace, and the reality of holy living in the life of the truly converted. But you may still be asking the same question. How is salvation by grace alone and the requirement to live a holy life not a contradiction? At different times in my life, I've been in two different camps. Years ago, I was in the camp of those who rejoice in the grace of God and the freedom in Christ, but my life started looking more and more like the world. I watched the same shows, sang the same music, spent too much time on the internet, ate too much food, but I was just enjoying the grace of God. In more recent years, I've been in the other camp, far more disciplined. We canceled Netflix, restricted internet use, changed our diet, introduced routines of Bible reading and prayer and family devotions, and I'd have good days where I felt like I'd done pretty well, but other days where I knew I just wasn't measuring up. But in the course of working through 1 John, I'm so grateful that God has shown me something. You see, neither of these two camps is the antidote for the other. Both camps miss how lives of holiness and salvation by grace relate because they miss the person of Christ. You have to come to the person of Christ. You have to be desperate for the person of Christ. Cast yourself on his mercies because you cannot change yourself, either in conversion or the Christian life. You have sin and you cannot fix yourself. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Your sin goes too deep. Your motivations are too twisted. You have to repent not just of all your bad deeds, but all your supposed good deeds done in your own strength, in your own self-righteousness, and for your own glory. Cast yourself on Jesus Do you see the perfect God of love and hope and mercy and justice and righteousness and holiness coming for you in the cross? Because of Jesus, your joy is not dependent on worldly pleasures or on your own performance. Your joy is Jesus, that I am loved by Jesus. You don't know eternal life apart from him, but if you have come to this Jesus, you will remain in this Jesus Is your whole being wrapped into Jesus? Do you want to seek his will and his presence because you want to draw ever nearer to him? Do you want to cut off the temptations in your life because you want to be closer to him? 
Do you want to confess all your sin and all the ways that you try to protect yourself and get glory for yourself and instead say, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, please make these things real to us. Convict us of our sin. Grant us repentance. And God, open our eyes to truly see the glory of your Son. Please be magnified, be glorified by our lives. Help us to no longer live for ourselves, but for you. Satisfy us in yourself. and Fill us with your Spirit. All to the praise and glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.